Lord, as I look out and I see these people, I'm overcome with love for each one of them. <clears throat> Lord, for the way that they've worked in my life and that I've seen the fruit in, of them, I just pray in some way that you will speak to me that I would speak to them today. Lord, though these words were spoke, uh, these words occurred almost 2,800 years ago, I believe that today you have a right now word for us. Lord, there is a word that's true for us today. So I pray that you would uh, you would speak through me and give me words to speak in your name. Amen. So if you would open your Bibles to Second Kings four, Second Kings four, it's about a story of of two women, so many times we hear these stories in different contexts, but we don't hear them together. And I think there's an important lesson to learn, be learned in these two stories. As you're turning there, I was, I was thinking this week about four and a half years ago, Maggie and I were, uh, were somewhat recently married and we were still living in an apartment and we were looking for a house. And so as we were driving, it was pretty, pretty early in the, the search, it was a long search, a very long search. But um, in the search, all of a sudden, Gage was about one and a half years old and he could barely talk, but we hear in the back this murmuring and this babbling. Swing, 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 amen. And so we look back and we see Gage in his car seat like this, going, swing, swing. Amen. And so it became quickly apparent to us that he realized that we were going to look for a house and more than anything in his life, he wanted a swing. <laughs> and he was praying for a swing. Well, we ended up buying the house at the absolute worst time and, uh, of the market, or the highest price of the market. But um, well, we got a swing set and uh, so he got his swing. Of course, it was one of those old chain link swings, you know, so you can take it apart so we actually don't have any functioning swing right now. But... Anyway, you know, we, we can laugh about Gage and of little kids and their desires, but isn't it, isn't it true as we get older our desires are kind of the same? We aren't much different. You know, many of us have just about everything we want, but maybe there's that one thing that says, if I had this, then everything would be okay. You're missing maybe that thing, and, and maybe that thing affects you, and maybe... You blame God because you don't have it, and maybe you are depressed because you don't have it. Or maybe worse, maybe you have gotten that thing that has been so great, and then it's gone. So I think these two stories speak to that. And in those situations, the question is, what is God's heart? Is God good to us? Where is He in that? And so I think, let's let's dive right into chapter 4. In Second Kings, and the first story is a story many of you know. It says this, Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord, but the creditor has come to take the two children to be his slaves, my two children, to be his slaves. And Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me what, is you have, what have you in your house? And she said, Your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. 
Then he said, go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels and not too few. Then go in, shut the door behind yourself and your sons, pour into all these vessels, and when one is full, set it aside. So she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons. And as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. And when the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another And then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God, and he said, Go sell the oil, pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on the rest. And then our second story of the the second woman is in verse 8. And it says, One day Elisha went on to Shunem, where a wealthy woman lived who urged him to eat some food. So whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there and eat food. And she said to her husband, Behold now, I know that this is a holy man of God who is continually passing our way. Let us make a small room on the roof with walls and put there for him a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp so that whenever he comes to us, he can go in there. One day he came there and he turned into the chamber and rested there. And he said to Gehazi, his servant, Call this Shunammite. When he called to her, she stood before him. And he said to him, Say now to her, See, you have taken all this trouble for us. What is to be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? But she answered, I dwell among my own people. And he said, What then is to be done for her? Gehazi answered, Well, she has no son, and her husband is old. He said, Call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway, and he said, At this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, No, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. But but the woman conceived, and she bore a son about that time the following spring, as Elisha had said to her. Verse 18, When the child had grown, he went out one day to his father among the reapers. And he said to his father, O my head, my head, The father said to his servant, Carry him to his mother. And when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap till noon. And then he died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. Then she called to her husband and said, Send me to one of the servants and one of the donkeys, that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. And he said, Why will you go to him today? It's, it, it is neither new moon nor Sabbath. She said, all is well. Then she saddled to the donkey and said to, she said to her servant, Urge the animal on. Do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When the man of God saw her coming, he said to Gehazi, his servant, Look, there is the Shunammite. Run at once to meet her. And say to her, Is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with the child? And he, she answered, All is well. And when she, came back to the, when she came to the mountain of the man of God, she caught hold of his feet. And Gehazi came to push her away, but the man of God said, Leave her alone, for she is in bitter distress. And the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Then she said, Did I not ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, Do not deceive me? He said to Gehazi, 
Tie up your garment and take my staff in your hand and go. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. If anyone greets you, do not reply. And lay my staff on the face of the child. Then the mother of the child said, As the Lord lives and you yourself live, I will not leave you. So he arose and followed her. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the face of the child. But there was no sound or sign of life. Therefore he returned to meet him and told him, The child has not awakened. Verse 32, When Elisha came into the house, he saw the child lying dead on the bed. So he went in and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. Then he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hands. And he stretched himself upon him. The flesh of the child became weak, or became warm, I'm sorry. Then he got up again and walked once back and forth in the house and went up and stretched himself upon him. The child sneezed seven times and the child opened his eyes. Then he summoned Gehazi and said, Call the Shunammite. So he called her and when she came up, when she came to him, he said, Pick up your son. She came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground, and then she said, and then she picked up her son and went out. It's the end of the word. As we as we read this story, if you're if you're reading through Second Kings, the thing that immediately would strike you is the absurdity of the story at all. It's, it's, it's odd that this story is here in the first place. I believe that first thing in Second Kings at one time was just one book and the author wrote them both together. And so if that's true, First Kings starts with the dynasty of David, King David, the the United Kingdom. And it ends, 2 Kings ends with the fall of Israel to Babylon in 586 B.C. So 1 and 2 Kings just kind of gives you a play-by-play, steady decrease and steady, the steady despair of the nation of Israel. <clears throat> and it's told mostly through the perspective of kings and of their battles. And occasionally there's the prophet, you know, Elijah came before Elisha, so he's brought into the stories and at the end of 1 Kings and then he's he transfers his authority and his prophet uh, rule to, to Elisha at the beginning of Second Kings. So the, so the question that begs to be asked, what is this story doing here? Now, to be fair, you know, this is the first of a, a number of miracles uh, showing the miraculous nature of, uh, and the power of, of Elisha. But in this story of all these kings... In fact, if you look at the end of chapter 3, there's a, there's a, there's a bloody account of the, a battle between Moab and Israel. And the king of Moab sees that the battle is going against him. So he gathers 700 of his best men, and he goes and he fights against Israel to try to break through the lines, and he can't. And so he fails, and in his, in his, in his unsuccess, it says he takes his oldest son, who's going to be his king, and it says he sacrifices him on his own on the wall as a burnt offering. And then this story. So what in the world does this story do here? I don't think the author is just randomly planting this here. I think what we're going to see throughout this is that it's not just the nation of Israel. It's not just kings that matter to God. It's that individuals matter to God. And not just the individuals, but it's those that are weak and disadvantaged. We see this all throughout the Bible. In Deuteronomy 10.28 it talks about God, and he says, God executes justice for the widow and the fatherless. And then there's other verses throughout the Bible that tells us to do the same. And a few more verses, chapters later in Deuteronomy, 
It says, Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the, so- due to the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow, and all the people shall say Amen. And then we come to the New Testament. Many of you know in James, the first chapter, he's talking about religion that's pure and undefiled. And he says, Religion that is pure and undefiled is to visit orphans and widows in affliction. So this is another story of God visiting an orphan and her two sons in affliction. And in verse 1, we see this, this woman. She is a widow. And we see her despair because it says she cries to Elisha. And she says, My husband is dead. You knew my husband. He feared the Lord, but now he's dead. And not only that, I'm in poverty. And not only am I in poverty, I have a huge debt. And the creditor is coming to take my sons. So the one source of future income that she might have to be able to earn a living is going to be taken from her to pay off this debt that, depending on whether the creditor is good or bad, may never get paid off, depending on how big the debt is. And so Elisha wants to help her. And so he asks for her. He says, well, what do you have in your house? And a sign of utter neediness, of absolute disparity or desperate measures. She says in verse 2, Your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. There's no money from a rainy day fund. There's no furniture. There's no food. There's no clothes. An empty house. You know, as I was reading through this story, I just fell in love with this woman. You know, there's no facade about this woman. She doesn't say, oh, you know, I, you know, everything's going to be okay. She comes and she says, I have absolutely nothing. You know, there's so many times, maybe you've come in, in contact with people you know who are in difficult situations, and they say, and you ask them seriously and with earnest, how is everything going? And they say, oh, everything's great. But it's refreshing, isn't it, sometimes when people are totally stripped down and they become honest and they say, life is hard. There's no facade about this woman. So many of you know the story well. Elisha in verse 3 tells her to go and to your neighbors and grab all that you can, or all the jars that you can, not too few. And so she does, and so she, she then, Elisha tells her to go into her house and shut the door behind her. And so I, you can see the picture of one of her sons giving her an empty jar and she starts to fill it all the way to, to the top and her other son takes it as her other son brings her another empty jar. And as the jars fill up, she asks for another jar and her, her son says, there are no more. And then the oil stopped. Now I think the, it's interesting and it's important to notice that this required faith on the woman's part. Notice that Elisha said, you go, grab a bunch of jars, go to your house, shut the door behind you, and go, go, and this miracle will be performed. Elisha is nowhere to be found, evidently, when this miracle is done. But the jars are full. And isn't this how God usually works? Isn't this typical of God, God's working in, in our lives and in the lives of those who love Him? He provides, and He has provided in above and beyond. Because in verse 7, she came, comes to him and he says, go and sell your oil and pay your debts. But not only that, he says, you and your sons can live on the rest. So God provides in abundance. And so this first story we see that God has a heart 
for those who are poor and who are weak, who, the orphans and the widows, those who are disadvantaged. And, and throughout the Bible, the, the Lord tells us to have the heart for those people. Sadly, this is not often what my heart is. And for sure, it's, it's the, what the world desires and what the world esteems is very, very far from what God esteems and what He values. I was struck by the irony of this just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, there's two things I do on my lunch break, uh, usually. The first thing I do is I'll check my email. And the second thing I'll do is I'll just check the news. So the first, uh, the first thing that I did was I checked my email and I had one email and I got it. And it was from uh, one of my buddies, Dan Weber. Adrian, do you have the slide? He's in Zambia and he, uh, he lived there for three years. He's, he's working in, in Zambia. And uh, Zambia's in Africa. You can go to the next slide. And he, here's the email that he wrote. There's, there's where Zambia is in Africa. And he said this. I'm, I mentioned a couple weeks back that the profile picture, he had the profile picture on his Facebook page, if you know what that is, uh, of a young boy who is the son of one of the workers at the Jubilee Center. That's where he works. And he says, he was born with one leg missing and he had a prosthetic leg in the past, but he grew out of it about five months ago. For the past five months, he has had to go to using crutches. My dad, or his dad, told me that he will oftentimes cry because his armpits and back hurt so much from using his crutches to walk to school about one mile and from playing soccer while on his crutches. Occasionally, he will even miss school because he tells, his, he tells him, his, it should be his mom and dad, that he can't walk all the way to school on his crutches because he is so sore. In my last message, I appealed to any of you who wanted to donate funds to help him get a new prosthetic leg to let me know. As of July 1st, we got all the money we needed from the money given through this Facebook page. And next week, we will go and get this boy, whose name is Gift, fitted for his new leg. Thank you for your support. It may not seem like much, but to this little guy, it means the world. And so I was just encouraged, isn't that the way that God should work in, in the lives? That we, in, the, in America, we have incredible resources, and people came and donated. It ended up only being 250 bucks. But to, get, to give this boy over in Zambia, um, Nadola, Zambia, Africa, a prosthetic leg. So I read this, and I'm like, isn't, isn't God good? And immediately after that, I promise you, I, I go to CNN.com, and here it was the most popular article on CNN. Here was the headline. Here it is. Cat amputee fitted with bionic feet. <clears throat> and here were, two of the, here were two of the lines that I was somewhat humored by. Uh, well, it, was a, it was a groundbreaking surgery of, of a cat in, in, uh, in Britain. And so it says... Custom-built paws were attached to the end of Oscar's prosthesis, allowing him to run and jump like normal cats. One video of Oscar walking on his artificial feet, and you can see this, was, has attracted more than 346,000 views on YouTube. And here was the other quote that I was somewhat humored by. Although Oscar's life was insured for 4,000 British pounds, approximately $6,070, Fitzpatrick, the doctor, dedicated much of his time and hospital resources at no cost to treat Oscar. And here is Oscar. Yes. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> now, my point is this. 
I'm sure the Lord loves Oscar. Okay, I don't want to belittle this. But my whole point is that, you know, there was a small handful of people. Many of you have never heard of Gift. Don't even know where Zambia I don't know where didn't know where Zambia was until I put the map together. But um or found the map. But the point is that if you look in the grand scope of things and what God values and what he desires, that's enough of Oscar, I think, Adrian. <laughs> Thanks. Um my point is that that was, was important and that and gift was incredibly valuable. And how great of, of the Western world with incredible resources coming together and just a couple people probably gave $250 so that gift, oh, there's gift. I'm sorry. There's a picture of gift. You can't see it real well. But um, gift getting a, wow. So this is, and this is a, a handful of, people in Western America, while the far, a far larger majority of Western America, or America, the Western world, was reading about a cat with prosthetic feet who was insured for $6,070. It was just an ironic contrast between what I think God values and what the world values. We need to constantly be reminded that God's heart is for the weak and for the disadvantaged. And so we see God's heart in this story. Our second story shows us God's goodness. In verse 8, this is a wealthy woman. And we see this because she, whenever, she, evidently, Elisha went through Shunem many times and she gave him food. And it happens a couple times. And so then she's like, hey, this is a great idea for a renovation project. So she tells her husband, behold now, this is a holy man. Let's build him an additional room. And this is how wealthy she is. Not only can they build onto their house, which in that time would have been incredibly, uh, been incredibly blessed of them, but she can furnish it not just with a bed, but look at what else she can furnish it with. A table and a chair and a lamp. So that whenever he goes there, he can be self-sustaining. He has, a, he has his own room. Now, she had, I don't think she does this with any ulterior motives. She just wants to bless what she sees as the man of God. Who, who works on behalf of God Himself. And so Elisha wants to help her. And so he has Gehazi ask what he can do for her. So the, an interesting scenario, he says to Gehazi, his servant, go and bring this Shunammite. So she comes up to this room that he's provided, and so he speaks to Gehazi and says, Gehazi, ask her what we can do for her. <clears throat> and Gehazi asks her, and her response is this. Her response is, in verse 13, I dwell among my own people. She's saying, I'm content. I have friends. I'm well connected. I have no need of anything. Life is okay. <clears throat> and I've been struggling all week with the question, you know, why did she not ask for a son? Why? Obviously, as we'll see, it was a great desire and a great need in her heart. And I think maybe one possibility is she just didn't think Elisha cared or that Elisha could pull it off. She didn't know how much of a man of God he really was. But I think maybe the, the more likely scenario would have been maybe she had transferred her hope towards becoming wealthy, becoming prominent, becoming great. How many of you have seen that? That one person, or maybe you have experienced this, where there's this one thing that you really want in your life, but you can't have it or it's difficult and so you're going to invest all of your time and all of your effort into this thing. I think that's maybe a possibility, but based off of her future responses, I think 
it's more likely that she had given up hope. She had been hurt for so long that she didn't even think about a son. She didn't want to open herself up to be hurt once again. So she leaves. And Elisha asks Gehazi, well, what can we do for her? And Gehazi's comment is, well, she has no son and her husband is old. Now, in this culture, many of you know, this would have been a blight. This would have been an utter disgrace for her in that time in Israel. Everything was perpetuated through the family line, and especially a son was well esteemed in that. So at best, it would have been an utter disgrace upon her. At worst, it would have been perceived as sin in her life. And a judgment by God, people thought a judgment of God to her. And so, at worst. I was just struck by how many of us maybe are like this woman We have everything, but maybe there's something missing in our life. And we say, if I had this, I'll be happy. If that thing was mine, then life would be better. Maybe it's something of others. If I just had a child, my youngest or my oldest child, if he just obeyed better, then life would be okay. If my boss would just appreciate me more, if I could just do better in my business, then life would be better. If this guy would just ask me out, then life would be better. Or maybe it's something of yourself. Maybe if I didn't wasn't addicted to online gambling as much. I'm sucked in and I can't get out, then life would be better. Maybe if I can make more money. Maybe if I had a different color hair. Well, I guess you could change that one. But um, maybe if I any number of things. But we see that this woman, there's an indication that there's this one thing that she wants, but she doesn't have. It's interesting, there's a pastor down in Mississippi, his name is Dale Ralph Davis. And he talks about the motif of the barren woman all throughout the Bible. You know, first we see it with Sarai. She's unable to have a son until an angel comes to her and she says, you'll be given a son. And then it happens. And then right after that we see her her daughter-in-law, Rebecca. And it's 20 years before she's able to have the twins, Jacob and Esau. And then we see Jacob's wife, Rachel, unable to have sons until until she's able to have Joseph. And then we come to Hannah and the story of Eli. And Eli prophesies and says to Hannah, you will have a son whose name will, will be Samuel. And then there's Manoah's wife. We don't know Manoah's name, but... She is met by an angel as well, and she's going to have Samson. And then the last one we we see is Elizabeth in the New Testament, and she has a son, John the Baptist. Now what's interesting is these, these men, these sons who grow to be men, can be divided into two categories. The first is that they're needed for the line of Israel to continue. Obviously, the Lord had promised Abram, at that time, a great nation. And so to do that, Isaac was needed to perpetuate the nation of Israel. But there's other, the other category of these men are that they were, they were needed to deliver or become great men in Israel. We know about Samson and how he judged and delivered the Israelites. Obviously, John the Baptist was the one who came before uh, Jesus. But what about this woman? And what about this son? Of a, apparently no consequence. We don't even know his name in the story. 
Apparently, he just lived and died and, and lived and died again, but um, probably just took over the family, the family business. And so I think, why does the Lord choose to give this woman a nameless son? I think it's just the simplicity of God's goodness. I think it's just the simple fact that God chooses to bless His people. And this is another picture. And so in verse 16, He says, At this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And her her heart or this is interesting. She says, No, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. Don't lie to me. And I think that's what her heart is revealed in that comment. Don't lie to me. My heart's been ripped out too many times. I'm not going to give, it, give in again. <clears throat> well, the story, well, it happens. And she has a son. And I can only imagine the response of her and the response of her friends. But let's fast forward in the story to verse 18. Her son gets sick. And he says, my head, my head. Now, in this story, the response of the father, I think, is similar to the response in my house. There's many times the kids come to my <laughs> to me and they complain about an aching elbow or whatever. And I say, yeah, go see the doctor. Go see the smart one. Go see, go see mom. And inevitably, mom makes it all better. But we see that in this story, the servant brings the boy home, and the child sat in her lap till noon, and then he died. What a, what a vivid picture that the author gives us. He's not just out in the field when he dies. He's not in the house when he dies. He's sitting on his mom's lap all morning, and then he dies. A picture of her loving, tender care for him as she's, he's on her lap. And then this is an indication of her heart. She puts him on Elisha's bed that she made for him. And she goes out. Now I think we need to come to grips with this because the Bible is giving us a difficult situation here. The man of God has been given, has given this woman a son and now he's gone. How true is it that sometimes God may bring heartache into your life, but maybe worse, after a long time, of heartache. He brings to you an inexpressible joy, all for it to be ripped out and that joy to be wrenched right from your hands. So what does she do? She goes and she goes to her, her husband and she says, grab me a donkey and a servant. And he says, this, this comment is interesting because it, it, evidently she has made a history of going to see Elisha because uh, she, the, her husband says, well, why? It's not a, any special occasion. It's not the Sabbath. But she says to him, all is well. Shalom. And so she goes, and she goes with the servant. And it was, this was about a 15 to 20 mile trek. We don't know exactly where uh, Elisha was on Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel is a big mountain. And, um, but she goes, and she wants to get there as fast as she can. And Elisha sees her in the distance. And she, he sends Gehazi out. And she, he, say, he says, go see if everything's okay with her. Go see if everything's okay with her husband. And go see, with it, see if everything's okay with her son. And her response is the same, isn't it? All is well. She bypasses Gehazi and her husband completely. She doesn't want to speak to either of them. She wants to speak to the man of God who acts on God's behalf. And then in verse 28, her response to Elisha. <clears throat> She said, 
Did I ask you, my Lord, for a son? Did I not say, do not deceive me? This reveals to her her heartache once afresh. You know, it's interesting that before her, the son, she said, I have no need of anything. I'm content. Life is okay. But now after the son, that deep, deep wound has been cut open again. And now she is needy. Now she is in despair. I think it's also interesting that when she comes and she weeps on Elisha's feet, at Elisha's feet, in verse 27, he says, Leave her alone, for she is in bitter distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me. Usually Elisha is used to being in on God's plans. Well, not in this scenario. In this case, Elisha has been hidden from, from what the Lord is doing. And I think the reason is that the Lord wants Elisha to empathize with the grieving mother. So he lets her weep on his feet. And he, so he summons Gehazi to go take his, his rod and go hopefully heal the, the son. But the woman says, no, I'm not going to leave. You. So what does he do? He goes with the woman and he sends Gehazi. Gehazi goes on ahead. Gehazi goes to the son, tries to revive him. Nothing happens. They come back. And Gehazi reports this. I can only imagine what that discussion would have happened, the discussion that Elisha and the woman would have, that would have occurred on that 20-mile trek. Not only up until when they got there, but when Gehazi got back and said, he's gone. He's dead. And then we have a weird account. I mean, it's, it's almost comical if you read commentaries. They try to figure out what in the world is Elisha doing here in verse 33. It says, He went in and shut the door behind the two of them and he prayed to the Lord. Then he went up and put, lay on the child, putting his mouth to his mouth, his eyes to his eyes, and his hands on his hands. I mean, that's just an odd, odd documentary of, of what's going on here. The only thing I can think of, the only thing that makes sense to me is that in some way Elisha is trying to empathize with this woman. And at first, and then he's trying to empathize with the son. He's taking, trying to take the place of the, of the son. And so, sure enough, he does that twice and then the child sneezes seven times and the child opens his eyes. And so he calls to her and he says, pick up your son. So she comes in and falls at his feet. And then she picks up her son and goes out. So what do we do with this? Well, I think there's two lessons to be learned in this text. I think the first lesson can be found by comparing and, contrast, comparing and contrasting the two women. The difference between the two women is that the first one says, there's nothing, I have nothing left, I'm empty. But... She does, um, but she pleads to God for help. The second one says, I have everything. I'm content. I don't need the man of God to help me. But there is this one thing, and it's too deep for me to even ask for. There are also interesting similarities of the two women. They both had experienced deep and profound loss. Obviously, the first woman had experienced the loss of her son, or the loss of her husband. And then she'd experienced 
the loss of money and being in poverty, and then she had experienced being in debt. And then she is now the impending loss of her two sons. But also the, the second woman has experienced the deep and profound law, uh, never having a son. The other, the other similarity is that I think both women had experienced shattered dreams and unspeakable heartache. The first woman, no doubt, thought that she would grow old with her husband. That she would have a steady source of income that she would get to raise and teach her sons and they would grow and they would live to be old and they would move out of her house. And now, they may be in slavery for the rest of their lives. And the second woman, I can only imagine how many times maybe she hoped or wished that she was pregnant, but only to realize, no, it was not to be. I think it's also interesting to see the similarities of the two women in the sense that what they, the one thing they had was completely unable to help them. The first woman had no money, but she did have a, two sons. But at that time, they were unable to pay for that, for her debt. However, the second woman had incredible amounts of, of money, but none of that was able to bring forth a son. So I think the lesson to be learned by comparing and contrasting these two women is that both women had faith in God. That faith was tested in tremendous ways, but God provided. And they were hoping not in the miracle itself, but in the one who would provide and could perform that miracle. Now I think there's two caveats too that I'll just mention very briefly. I think the Lord, God may choose to bless with success, but he may also choose to bless with sufferings. Both are a blessing from God as we see throughout the Bible. And sometimes the suffering is the greater of the blessing. Sometimes the, sometimes the oil isn't multiplied and sometimes the sun isn't raised. But success and suffering are both a blessings from, blessing from God. The second caveat that I want to mention quickly is that the blessings and whatever God gives for success may not, must not be desired over that, the God who gives those blessings. So the lesson is trust in God because He can provide abundantly. So the call of the stories is the same. And so whether you can identify with the first one with absolute lack of, of everything or the, the second woman with a with everything except if she's honest, the one thing she really wants. The call is to trust in God. But our second lesson comes from about 800 years later. There's another story of a prophet and a widow's dead son. It happens in Nain, just about two to three miles north of Shunem. Ironic, in Luke Luke 7, if you go to Luke 7, there's an account. 7.11 says, Soon afterward, he, being Jesus, went to a town called Nain. And his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, 
Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us. God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. You know, Jesus says something to her that is perhaps maybe the most calloused, most heartless, meanest thing that you could say to a woman in that situation. He says, do not weep. What a cruel thing to say unless you have the power over that sadness, over the source of that weeping. You see that Jesus tells this this the woman not to weep because he has the power to raise that woman. And Elisha, though he appealed to God and he prayed that Jesus would he- or that God would heal him, Jesus in this story, in the- with this widow's son, he just speaks and he says, "Get up." Elisha is just a foreshadowing of Jesus. The power of, G- of God that raised this the widow's son in our second story is the same power that raised the boy. In name. It's the same power that Jesus used to raise His Son. And it's the same power that will raise all of us. All of His sons and all of His daughters who believe from, from the dead. In our first story about the woman and the oil, it's an odd, out of place, absurd story showing us God's heart. But the story of Jesus is even maybe more absurd. Almost too good to be true. Jesus coming to earth in human form is an even greater example of His heart for the orphans and widows. He had everything, but He gave everything up to empathize with those that are weak and disadvantaged. There's the story of the, of the, the narrative of the second woman. The second woman, show, or the, we learned that God is good and blesses His people. But in Christ, God blesses His people in the greatest way. And shows them that He is good by sending His Son to die in our place. The second story is about a nameless son who was born miraculously and was raised from the dead. The story of Jesus is about the greatest son whose name is above all names who was born miraculously and was, born from, or was raised from the dead. So the, our second lesson in this story is that Jesus is the greater Elisha. Jesus is the consummation of this story. So I come back to your desires, your dreams, your hopes. What do you desire today? He may supply that desire, or He may not. He may give, and He may take away. But the call is to trust in the One who will never disappoint. See, because... Whether you believe it or will be honest or not, your greatest desire in your life is for Jesus. And He is your greatest need. Your greatest need is for the greatest Son. So trust in Jesus, for He is good. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that in some way, 
that You would speak to each one. Lord, that if there is some hurt or some desire, somebody would not be in a hurry to just go do the next thing today. That they would wrestle with You. That I would wrestle with You. That we would grab another person that we can talk to, that can pray for us. That we can share our hopes and our dreams. And we can hopefully remind each other that our greatest need and our greatest desire is for Jesus. And you may choose to bless with success and with many of your good gifts, but you may choose to bless with suffering. As Job said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So I pray as we've learned, as we've looked at these two women, that we would see your heart for the weak and the the poor, and we would see your goodness in all circumstances. We pray this in your name. Amen.